And the time to start, if you're not living your dream, is right now. Start setting goals and setting out where you set in the course of your life and setting it all up so that you get somewhere in the future. When all that comes together, something happens called fulfillment. If you are not experiencing awesomeness in every aspect of your life, it's just from internal block or barrier disconnect that you've chosen to take on. Life is as easy or as hard as we want to make it. And I got my hands and my eyeballs and my heart around any information I could around holistic healing. And that led me down a never-ending rabbit hole of which I'm still spelunking into the depths of. I needed something like ayahuasca to really wake me up because I was very rigid and very stuck in my ways and very structured and controlling. And my first ayahuasca ceremony cracked my ego in a billion pieces. And uh, that's when I believe when when we really follow our deepest truth, when we really follow our soul, when we really follow our true calling, the universe rises to support us moment to moment to moment. Welcome to the Holistic Health and Human Potential Podcast. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. I'm an international speaker, author of multiple books, an integrative nutritionist, a transformation and embodiment coach, and simply a man who has devoted most of my life to the study, application, and integration of human potential. And it is my biggest inspiration to bring you weekly episodes that will expand your mind challenge your paradigm, deepen your heart, and help you to embody the greatest version of yourself as I believe you are meant to do something incredible with your life and this podcast exists simply to support you on that journey. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Holistic Human Optimization Show. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. Today, we have an extremely valuable and powerful conversation um, ready for all of you to dive deep into. I am joined by the director of a documentary film by the name of American Circumcision. His name is Brendan Morado. And um, we were introduced through a mutual friend, Destin Garrick. And um, I actually was not aware of this film not that long ago, which is interesting because of the line of work that I do. And so many of you that have followed me for so many years know that I dive deep into a multitude of quote unquote taboo topics relating to health and wellness and just the human experience. And for some reason, this documentary had not made its way to my awareness until recently. And once it did, I knew that we had to dive into this. Um, This is a topic that has become even more near and dear to my heart. I actually just watched the documentary, as I told you before we started recording last night and really made my way all the way through it. And I have to say, Brendan, um, there has been no documentary or film that has pulled me so emotionally and not not so much comfortably for obvious reasons. Um, I was appalled. I was angry. I was embarrassed. I was, um, so many different things came up for me. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the film Vaxxed, um, Del Bigtree's film on vaccines. That's, that's a huge, that's a huge controversy in an area that I've focused on a lot. I watched that film three times consecutively and I was extremely angry on multiple levels, but this one in particular hit me in a very sensitive spot, not only just because as a man, um, I've also been affected by it, but I didn't realize how affected I was, all the other adult men 
um, growing up, all the boys, everything. I think really what, what hit me the most, and we'll dive more into this in your perspectives around everything, obviously, was the was almost like the stealing of innocence and the residual effects psychologically, emotionally, and physically that this has had on multiple generations of young boys and how just accepted this practice is in our country. It really hit that, that soft spot inside of me. So, um, you know, I thank you so much for making the time to join me here to share this message with our audience. And um, I think the, the easiest place for us to start is kind of the obvious question, which is, you know, what, what really prompted you to doing this documentary, um, directing this film? Like, well, tell us a little bit about your journey getting to the point where you decided that you had to kind of make a stand and bring this to people's awareness. So I think like most Americans, circumcision was not something I thought about a lot. It was something that made me uncomfortable when it would come up in my mind. And I just sort of thought, well, there's nothing I can do about that now. So, you know, why think about it? And I went through a period in my life where I was letting go of a lot of old childhood patterns that didn't serve me. And as I was reading everything I could about psychology, about how events early in life affect you later on, I would run across this topic every now and then and think, you know, it feels like there's something there, but I don't know if I really want to think about it. Um, and it wasn't until during that process I started to get in touch with my own feelings about it that I was actually willing to look at it. And one of the first pieces of information I found was that the procedure is often performed without anesthesia. And the moment I saw that, it like clicked for me because I, I have, uh, I know how just, you know, not holding a child can affect them. Um, so it seemed to me if you hold down a child and cut off a part of their body with no anesthesia as they scream in pain, that has to have some effect later on in life. And so that's what led me to actually researching it. And then, of course, other things I started to find out were things like foreskin restoration, which is where men will take the remaining skin they have and stretch it over time so as to get a covering there again. It doesn't bring back all the nerve endings and the complex tissues, but it brings back some of the form and function of the foreskin. So I saw that also. I thought like, well, you know, my whole life I've been told there's nothing you can do about this. Clearly there is something that a lot of people are doing about it. So what else have I not been told about this issue? And that research is what led to the documentary. You know, I went through uh, one of my interview subjects calls the obsessive epiphany, which is the moment when you realize there's more to an issue than your culture has told you. And you start researching everything. You start looking up every podcast, every website, every book. Um, I imagine that people in your audience have gone through this obsessive epiphany process on multiple issues where you just, you just go deep into a subject and you're reading everything about it and it's two in the morning and you're on the third Wikipedia link down. Uh, and so I, I went through that process around this issue and, I, and what I was discovering really surprised me and really moved me. And I just sort of thought, why is no one talking about this? Why is there they're not something out there on this. Why is this not known by the wider public? And at the time I was living in Los Angeles, I was working as a filmmaker and it just seemed like this was something I needed to bring the skills that I had to share with the world. So that's what I did over the course of six years. Um, I would go and I would work on, you know, paid projects and, and other people's films. And then I would take the money and take some time and work on this film. And now it's completely done. It's, you can find it on, 
uh, circumcisionmovie.com, on every website that sells films, on Netflix, and the information is getting out there. But that was the journey of the film, you know, very compressed because it was a long process. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different angles that I want to kind of unpack with you about this. I really want to help people understand a, first of all, we could even do like just a quick little thing on like what exactly circumcision is. And also, um, I guess I really want to dive into like the implications that you have come to find. I, I have my own obvious implications um, of, of what this what this practice has done to an entire generation of boys. And um, we'll say I'll kind of maybe we'll trickle some of those those uh, bullet points as we progress in the conversation. But you know, just for people that are listening that may never even dove into this because it is so culturally accepted, it's almost just kind of like, oh, it's just another uh, surgical procedure. It's for, for hygiene purposes is what they tell you. But one of the things that really caught my attention is that this is the number one surgical procedure in our country, and it's, it's never really been questioned to a great degree. So, you know, what exactly is circumcision for people? And um, we'll kind of go from there. So most Americans don't even know what circumcision is. I mean, there's a moment in the opening of the film where there's this older man who's talking to an activist and says, do they, do they remove tissue in that? I thought it was just an incision. Like he's in his sixties. He doesn't even know that aspect of his body and his anatomy. So, you know, most of I think most people know, well, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin and that they cut that part off. And when you hear that, the mental image is like someone takes a pair of scissors and does this right. In reality, it's much more involved than that. The foreskin is fused to the head of the glands, kind of like the way your fingernail is fused to your finger. So first they, uh, put a tool down in there and break it away. And again, like imagine if someone did that to your fingernail and then there's a clamp that's applied that applies thousands of tons of pressure and sits on there for at least five minutes. And then it's cut away. And this is all done without anesthesia. And of course you can't have the child flailing around during that. So there's a specialized board called a circumstraint that they strap the child to on a four point restraint. Like one of the activists I know refers to it as the rack. So like someone, you know, tied down to this thing. And um, because the head of the penis, you know, it's the foreskin is fused to that, all of that tissue is now scar tissue. So people think there's just a circumcision scar where the cutting happened. Actually, everything above that is now scar tissue. So when you frame it like that, it sounds very like, you know, would you like your child circumcised versus would you like us to do this invasive 15 minute surgery that's going to leave scar tissue on his genitals and be extremely painful and probably be done without anesthesia or ineffective anesthesia and is going to alter his sexuality for the rest of his life. When you say it like that, I don't think a lot of parents would say yes to it. But because we have this euphemism, because it's not something people think about, because it is culturally taboo circumcision is allowed to continue in American culture. And so many of the people who continue it and permit it or choose it have very little awareness on the issue of circumcision. I've heard many activists say that the more you learn, the worse it gets because, you know, that image of circumcision is very different than the little snip that is usually presented in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was um, there was a number of moments, but towards the end of the film, they really got graphic and actually showed a child going through what was, I guess, considered to be a less invasive type of practice. Um, 
where they put where they basically injected the the needle directly into I guess the shaft or the penis and then but it was very like I literally when I was watching it I felt this visceral effect in my solar pl- like there was like I was like actually agonizing I felt you know you could call it my own little boy or something but it was like so visceral inside of me I almost couldn't watch I was I was I was borderline about to go into tears watching the whole process yeah, that circumcision, it's really interesting because activists who've been involved on the issue and seen the procedure before say, why didn't you include a worse circumcision? That was actually a really light. And people who haven't seen it before watch that and go, that was really intense. I almost couldn't watch that. Or some people tell me they just skipped that scene. Part of the reason that scene has a title card on the front where we say that the full procedure is 20 minutes and we're only going to show you two minutes is because when I did test screenings, I found that people couldn't make it through that scene. They'd skip it because they go in, they don't know if it's going to be a 20 minute scene. They don't know if it's going to, you know, but if I shortened it to 10 seconds or 30 seconds, people think, Oh, it's not that bad. They don't realize it's a 20 minute long invasive procedure. So that's why that title card is there just to tell the audience it's it's really long. I'm only going to show you this amount. You know, if you, can't watch that this is the amount to skip ahead uh but yeah even just the lightest version of it or a version where they use the best available pain medicine is still really difficult to watch and still has all of the impact on the child's sexuality and his feelings and his emotions and his perception of his body and his personal autonomy as to whether or not he had the right to make his own decisions about his body so the pain aspect is huge, but in some way it's only one of many aspects of this issue that are equally severe. One of the interesting psychological aspects of this for me is when I look at our population, I look at the, the divide between men and women or, or our form of masculinity. There's so, many, there's so much talk about toxic masculinity and how men are blamed for basically everything. And um, I can't help but see the obviousness of this situation, among others. But this is like this represents a primordial wound. And if people really actually start to soberly look at what has happened to little boys, you know, uh, when I think about when I came into the world, I was basically sexually assaulted as my introduction into this planet. But I, you know, I don't consciously remember that. So that repressed trauma, it doesn't just go away, right? It gets redistributed into the nervous system, into one's psyche or unconscious. And I also see the correlation between the mistrust of the mother or the feminine or women that a lot of boys exhibit. You know, I know for me, raised raised by a single mother, I had a lot of behavioral um let's say opposition or issues towards my mom, not necessarily towards other male role models, but there was something there where I just, there was like, almost like, I don't, I don't know if it was distrust, but I had like almost like a a rebellious nature specifically towards my mom and my grandmother. And I can't help but wonder if it was because I was basically mutilated as a child and who gave permission to do that. Yeah, this is, as one activist in my film put it, in some way, the first lesson to men, you know, welcome to earth. Here's how you can expect to be treated. And as one of the activists in my film put it, we teach men on the first day of their life that if you're bigger and stronger than someone else, you get to do what you want to their body. 
And we teach them that in their first relationship with women, with their relationship to their mother, on which all other relationships will be patterned on. And then later, people talk about this idea of toxic masculinity or rape culture, and they don't look at why that is or where that might have come from. And there are many activists who would argue that what we call rape culture is something taught to men in the first day of their life and taught to them by women, by their mother. So I would not be surprised if some of the feelings you had or some of the feelings that many men have come from early life memories that they can't remember. And there are studies like the Taddeo pain study, which we talk about in the film that show that the pain from circumcision can cause a lasting change in behavior. So in the specific study I'm mentioning, they measured the response to vaccines from children later. So they put a needle in for the vaccine. One group of children reacts incredibly dramatically. They act like this is the worst pain they've ever felt. And so they're trying to figure out why is it that one group is responding to the pain dramatically and the rest aren't. And what they found was that the group that responded dramatically was boys who had been circumcised. And the researchers attributed this to PTSD, post-traumatic stress. So the boys had this intense pain and circumcision. They received pain later, and that pain triggered the memory of the pain of their circumcision. Mm. So part of the challenge when you talk about late things in later in life and larger cultural trends is that you can't do a one-to-one study on adult behavior with early life trauma. It's not like you could circumcise half the population and leave the other half intact and then give them exactly the same life experiences, exactly the same genetics, exactly the same environment. It's, it's not possible. So when you talk about that later life stuff, it isn't something that we can measure yet or that we can scientifically prove, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening. It just means that our instruments are not yet able to measure it. And then the place that we can measure it, we find that early life trauma has a dramatic change in behavior later. It, I mean, it, it's astonishing to me how people will use what they believe science or what I might call more scientism, which is, uh, which is completely different is completely different than science, right? It's more of a, a religious use of the scientific method to, to prove away any other ideas or theories that contradict or oppose their set. You know, we see this, with the pharmaceutical industry and every, pretty much every industry. And I couldn't help but notice when I listened to that one doctor in particular, who was pro, pro-circumcision, it really felt very much like materialistic. It felt very much like he was, there was a sense of like common sense that just was not there. You know, and and, um, I want to kind of, and it was actually very, like, it was very challenging or very frustrating for me to even listen to, just because when I look at it, I'm looking at just, just common sense. Just like if you, if you perform this kind of act, and when you see the act, it's even more obvious, inflicting this kind of pain on an innocent child, an innocent boy, you have to draw an obvious conclusion that something is wrong here. Like this is going to have a multitude of residual effects and maybe a lot of what we're seeing from in, in our culture, and we don't have to go into all the, the, the nuances because there's so many different things, that this would have some kind of residual effect, yet it's being, it's being kind of like validated. I guess that's kind of where I'm going with this is that it's being 
validated. It's being like in the name of quote unquote science, but are there any real scientifically proven literature or, or reasons for doing, um, doing circumcisions? Um, so part of the question you're asking is about framing because right. when it comes to circumcision, the way that that is typically framed is what are the benefits and what are the risks? And very specifically, what are the benefit risks on disease prevention that we can measure in the early life and during certain parts of a man's life? And we don't do that with any other part of the body. We don't say, well, if I cut off my ear, what's the benefit to risk ratio of that? You know, do, should we cut off a nose? Should we cut off your hands? Whenever, when we look at every other part of the body, we assume that that person has a right to their body and that you can't cut off part of their body without their consent. And even if a patient came in and said, I'd like to cut off my hand, the first thing the doctor would ask is, why? Like, why do you want to do that? And most physicians wouldn't do that unless they first psychologically evaluated the patient. They'd, you know, they'd go through all of these things. But if you want to cut off your child's foreskin, that's totally fine. And we don't evaluate women's that bodies that way either. So we don't look at with female genital cutting, what are the benefits and risks of doing that? So there's a question of framing there. And then when it comes to looking at the evidence within that, many doctors have an attitude that if you can't measure it, it's not important. So you can't measure something like human rights. Measuring sexual pleasure is very difficult to do and somewhat self-reported. Men's feelings are even harder to measure. And in the places where doctors do try to measure those things, I notice that they tend to cite self-reported surveys in which the participants are being paid. So, for example, there were trials around HIV in Africa, and I have heard doctors say, well, in those trials, the men said they were happy, and so then they must be happy. Not looking at that the participants are being paid what in the United States would be the equivalent of around $10,000 in healthcare, and there is a, you know, a system in place where there is an incentive for them to give the researchers the reaction that they want. So all of that said, when you do look like this is the difficulty is you get a couple layers deep and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then the headline that is printed is circumcision prevents and then some disease. So circumcision prevents STDs or prevents HIV or it prevents uh, urinary tract infections or the common cold or epilepsy or whatever, whatever the headline is. Right. And people who are circumcised see that and they go, well, I'm circumcised. I don't want to get that. That sounds great. Moving on with my life. I'm not going to question it any further because there's no incentive for me to. And to get into each of those studies takes a long time. So on the HIV studies, for example, the first edit I had of that was about an hour long. And I found when I showed that to people, most of them said, what do you mean? You can still get HIV and be circumcised? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but to actually go into the data of the, and the methodology and really scientifically critique them, that's the amount of time that you need. And most parents aren't circumcising their children for these supposed medical benefits. They're doing it for cultural reasons. They're doing it because that's what their parents did. They think it looks better. Um, and when you do get into those studies, there's a lot of methodological flaws and a lot of strange assumptions. So for example, urinary tract infections can be cured with antibiotics. Girls get them at a higher rate than boys, yet we surgically alter boys for them. And at the time those studies were done, what was commonly done was something called forced retraction. So like I mentioned, the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands and doctors thought 
that you needed to pull that foreskin back and clean under there. Now, if you pulled your fingernail off to clean under it, you'd probably get a lot of infections there. Yet they're telling people to do the equivalent on boys' bodies, and they say, oh, the foreskin just seems to get infected all the time. It's really dirty. We've got to get rid of it. So they're not taking care of the foreskin right, and then they're finding that the foreskin's having issues. And there's a, you know, when you, I think if you were to remove that element from the UTI studies, it wouldn't come up that way. And, and you could get really deep on the, you know, again, like the data, the methodology of these studies, um, the HIV studies, for example, had more participants leave them than stay in the study. They had a lot of serious methodological flaws, a lot, some, some ethical questions raised about them. Um, and at the same time, most people aren't making their decision on that. And at the same time, most people don't evaluate any other part of that body that way. So I think what a lot of activists choose to do is go to the high ground question of, do we even have the right to do this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, if you found that female circumcision prevented STDs, and in fact, there are studies saying that circumcised women have the lowest rates of HIV in the world. Do you think it's now okay to do that to little girls? We, most people would say, well, no, we don't evaluate women's, you know, that's not okay. Women have the right to their own bodies, my body, my choice. And yet when we look at men, we do it completely differently. We take the model of for your own good. I'm doing this for your own good, which is a phrase in parenting that does not have a great history. Mm. What um, There's a number of things that, I could easily respond to one of them that just came up from what you just said is that, um, you know, we hear a lot about, I don't know, in your world, in my world, there's a lot of spiritual motif around like the rise of the feminine, um, which I, which I completely agree with, you know, equal rights and all that kind of thing. Um, but trying to almost like, but there's like this weird fine line where it becomes like trying to equalize or neutralize this idea of patriarchal hierarchy um, and to the point where, you know, it's almost like some men feel like they're being, they're being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost like, um, like dropped down a size. But even now what I'm getting from what you're saying in this whole situation is that it's not even like that. It's like men are being dismissed to a certain degree where like the men's rights, men's feelings, like this idea that men don't even have feelings. Therefore we need to cater to, you know, you know, things like women's rights and women's equality. But what about men's equality? What about the, the, the right to, you know, to choose, you know, something as simple as this. Um, I kind of, I don't know how deep you want to go into that, but that's just kind of the thought that came up for me just from like an emotional and psychological and, and, and self-identity perspective. Yeah, our culture has not had a conversation yet about men's feelings, rights, masculinity. We've had a very strong movement around women's rights and women's identity. And part of the challenge that I think men are facing is that the conversation around masculinity is based around the question, what do women need from men? Not, what do men need to be the best version of themselves? Right. Wow. And so, you know, I think there's a split in our consciousness around masculinity, around the idea of empathy and aggression. And aggression without empathy, you know, boundaries, strength, 
can be very oppressive to people. It can be very cruel. And so I think there's a lot of people in modern culture and in some of the spiritual communities that you're mentioning who feel like, well, we just need to get rid of all that aggression stuff. We got to get that out of here. And then we'll have the tenderness. But tenderness and empathy without boundaries is weak, unable to provide. It is passive aggressive. You know, it's, it's not actually the full, whole, healthy masculine. You need both. Right. You need your boundaries and strength and aggression, and you need empathy and tenderness and caring for others. And so I think that what we have done in our conversation around masculinity is split those because one of them scares us, and we haven't realized yet that this is just as bad mm-hmm. without both of them. And on this issue, there is a, a mirror in terms of how we treat men. So one of the things that I did is I interviewed someone who is uh, an anthropologist who is a researcher around traditional circumcision symbolism in like ancient African cultures. And one of the things that she talks about is that in the earliest discussions of circumcision, first of all, male and female circumcision were always practiced together. There is no culture that practices female circumcision that does not practice male circumcision as well. And in those cultures, the the clitoris is seen as the masculine element in women. You know, it's, it's essentially a glands, it's penetrating, it extends from the body. And so you need to remove the masculine from women so that they become women. And in men, the foreskin is seen as the feminine element. It is wet, it is enveloping, it is receiving. And so you need to cut that off of men so they become men. Wow. And I think that part of the reason our culture abhors female circumcision but is okay with male circumcision is because women have had a very strong movement around the idea that they can play the masculine role. And the worst thing you could tell a woman is that she can't play the masculine role. If you tell a woman something like get back in the kitchen, that's one of the most offensive things you can do and you will be attacked for that. But we haven't had a movement around men playing the feminine role or accepting that part of themselves. You know, if you tell a man get back to work, I mean, that's a normal thing to say, right? So though that symbolism, that way that we treatment, I think extends psychologically to this issue in which we feel like it's not okay for men to express certain feelings or have certain complaints or or things that are going on with them unless it somehow benefits women. Mm. And so there has to be a cultural conversation around the idea of having whole men, men who have both of these elements who have both their tenderness and their aggression, who have both their masculine and their feminine and are full, complete, whole men. But we're not there yet. That conversation has not begun. Yeah. And it's, it's happening in micro pockets in terms of like men's groups and, and yes. men warrior, kind of this return to a warrior archetype. And like, what does it mean to be embodied in your masculinity in a healthy way? I can't help but think about our cultural gender confusion that we're in right now and how so many men um, are actually opting to surgically become, you know, surgically become women, but are, you know, that doesn't change the fundamental wounding. And so, and actually what's crazy about that when I looked into that whole movement is actually a lot of those, those, men, women, whatever, 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 whatever acronym or whatever you use, um, a lot of them actually commit suicide after they have that surgical procedure, because then they realize 
what an incredible mistake that was because it actually didn't solve the core wounding, the trauma that, that they were doing that for. I know it's another subject, but geez, like I just can't help seeing all these correlations. And I'm not saying it's because of circumcision. I'm saying this is one element of, of a puzzle box when we talk about the, the um, I guess, the, the dimensions of masculinity and repressed masculinity and pretty much everything that, that you're helping all of us just in this conversation become more aware of. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously very complex, but I think we need to start connecting the dots because if we don't, where is this going to go in the future? Where is this, 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 this identity confusion um, and this lack of, of integration going to lead us? So one of the interesting things in what you brought up was that we have a culture now where gender is fluid, where people can identify as a gender that is different than the biological sex most would perceive them as when they're born. And it is interesting how how little circumcision fits with our current cultural definitions. So, you know, I remember reading an article, it was in Slate, that say, arguing that people should not assign children a gender at birth, that you don't know their gender identity, when they're born later, uh, they might choose to be something different. And in the same publication, they have an article saying that you should circumcise your children, you circumcise your boys, because, and, and that basically anyone who disagrees with that is a troll. It's like, the title was something like how trolls took over the circumcision debate. Now, which is it? You know, you should not assign a gender at birth, but you should circumcise the boys. How does that make sense? Uh, and I actually know in, in the intactivist movement, there are trans people who say that circumcision has affected their transition surgeries, that it has not left them with the tissue they would need to transition and that they feel like their rights were violated by that. So I'm, I'm curious if at some point we'll see a court case where someone sues over circumcision and says, I identify as a woman and you did female genital mutilation to me. It's, but again, like our, our cultural standards have changed so much. Circumcision comes from a time period in which sexuality was seen as bad and in which children did not have the rights that we feel like they should have now. So we have this like weird mishmash of cultural definitions that are at least a hundred years old, maybe older with a society that has had lots of movements around the idea that you have the right to your own body. You have the right to your own gender identity. You have the right to express your sexuality in whatever way doesn't harm others and is authentic to you. Yet we also have this other thing that your parents get to choose what genitals you keep. So it, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense with our current cultural definitions. I, um, w- one of the things that <clears throat> came up a few times in the, in the uh, documentary was this idea that it's your, they don't basically, I remember the whole thing, you, you would know, but like they got to a point where it was like the, the institutions or the medical field didn't want to deal with it. Basically they didn't want to go through the, the court or, or maybe it was the court that didn't want to do it, deal with it. And they said, Oh, it's just up to the parents. Well, are those parents being evaluated for psychological reasons before they go into this? Because like, who are the parents? I'm not judging parents. I'm just saying like, if we're going to make the same argument, 
well, shouldn't the parents be be um, evaluated for making an appropriate decision or having some kind of psychological balance? Um, because we live in a, and I bring that up not to judge parents, but um, quite the contrary, but to but to also bring to light that we're dealing with a society that is highly addicted, highly medicated, highly, this is a human being problem in our society. We're dealing with one fourth of the population uh, statistically, maybe it's more that is psychologically impaired or imbalanced to some extent. So if it's the parent's decision, are they necessarily in the right frame of mind to be making those decisions? Well, very often hospitals seek consent for circumcision right after birth. And there have been cases of parents signing the consent form for circumcision while they're still on drugs from giving birth. And the court case we talk about in the film, in which someone as an adult sued the hospital that circumcised him, one of the things they found in discovery is that his circumcision, his mother had signed the consent form while she was still on drugs after giving birth to him. And the lawyer argued, he said, you can't get consent from someone when they're impaired by drugs. That's, you know, if you were to, in any other situation, like if you were to get try to get sexual consent from someone who is out of their mind on drugs, that would, that would not be okay. Yet when it comes to hospitals, it's, you know, they sometimes do the same thing. Um, there's also something in medicine known as informed consent. So if you want to go get a medical procedure done, the doctor has to tell you whatever any reasonable person will want to know about it. So if you're going to get shoulder, shoulder surgery, the doctor will tell you, well, uh, we think it'll do this, but there's these potential risks and complications, and this might be the outcome, and this is the chance of success, and all of the things around that. When it comes to circumcision, hospitals just say, would you like the child circumcised? That's it. They don't tell you more than that. So there is a passing of blame on the issue of circumcision, where mm-hmm. hospitals and doctors will say, well, we just do what the parents want. Parents will say, we did what the doctor told us was best. And I think rather than focusing on blame, we need to have a conversation about responsibility. Right. Who has a responsibility to protect the child? When you look at it from that question, everyone involved has a responsibility to protect the child. Parents have a responsibility to protect their children, and doctors have a responsibility to protect their patients. Right. And, and on that also, there's an entire community of what's known as regret parents, parents who made the decision and were not given adequate information and later found out it was wrong and feel very bad about that. They have right. a lot of guilt and emotions to process around it. And there's also an entire community of doctors who practice conscientious objection. So as a physician, you're allowed to say no to any procedure that you feel like violates your ethical standards. So that's often applied to abortion. There are a lot of doctors who say, I'm not comfortable performing abortions, but it can be applied to any procedures. There are a lot of doctors who say, I don't want to do circumcisions. I don't think that's ethical. And so there is an out for both parents and doctors that is very easy. And there are people who have changed their mind in both camps, doctors who've done many circumcisions who later say it was wrong. And I don't think I I should have done that. And and I have, I have corresponded with a few of them. I have, there's more than one in my film. Uh, So it's very common on both sides, but when the conversation comes up around circumcision, doctors don't ever talk about those people or the idea that you might change your mind. This is a permanent decision you're making for someone else. Right. It's kind of like the conversation a parent might give to an adolescent child who wants to get a tattoo, right? 
It's like you may, you're, make, you're, you're making a permanent decision for your body. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you know, that's, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished by, by the whole situation. I'm really curious. There's two, one thing you brought up, which I did want to dive into was, you know, speaking about feminine intuition, speaking about that empathy, that neuro network of empathy, which, you know, actually I just, let me, let me, let me, I just had a new, new thought, which, which is really interesting. And I want to, I want to get to that too, is you mentioned how, mothers that find out about this often respond with a lot of regret and maybe even feeling ashamed and embarrassed. And we, we, we think of women as highly empathetic, intuitive, in touch with their feelings, very emotional beings. We talked about men culturally are not necessarily seen as emotional. Well, I wonder why if you have if they've been sexually assaulted or mutilated and their sensitivity has literally been removed from their genitals, would that not possibly affect their sensitivity or their sensibility later on in life? Um, that, that just popped in my mind. I thought that might be worth just putting, putting in the conversation. Um, here's what your response to that is. I would not be surprised if a lot of the data that we have around men and male sexuality is later shown to be incorrect because it is actually data around men who've experienced genital cutting. If all of our studies on women were on circumcised women, I think people would question the validity of those studies when generalized to the majority of the female population. On top of that, there are a lot of cultural standards and things applied to men to attempt to get them out of their feelings or censor their feelings. And that comes from a number of different things. It would be a longer conversation to get into that. That's why I'm hesitating here because I'm not sure how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole. But in general, I think that a lot of what we know about men and masculinity is based on men in a circumcising culture who have experienced this event in the first day of their life. Mm, I think that that's a beautiful way to just kind of tie a bow on that, that point. I thought that was just such an important just thought process for people just to critically think, because one of the, one of the issues I had watching the documentary and listening to certain people was just like, where is the critical thinking here? Like, are we, are we at that place in our society? We've become so hyper scientifically materialistic where it's like, we can't even think through a problem unless it has like double blind placebo controlled studies. And it's like in every, there's so much overwhelming data that then we can actually start to think about it. Um, and I think that's one of the problems that we're, we're, we're really facing in our culture in general is just the inability of, of critical thinking and common sense. Right. There is an attitude among data. Uh, just to check, I noticed you just froze on my screen. Is that because you're ah, okay? It was my screen. Sorry. Sorry to pause there for a minute. Um, but what I do notice is that there is a th thinking, thinking in the medical that only a certain amount of data is relevant and only what you can measure is relevant. So, you know, men's feelings, we can't measure that. So they must not exist uh, or it must not be relevant or important. And, and the data they look at 
the way that circumcision is framed in the mainstream is that it is looked at as a one-time decision that the parent makes that affects a series of data points and never comes up again. And part of the view that I take in the film and that we explore is that circumcision is more like dropping a stone in a pond. It is a thing that happens once, yes, but then it ripples out through that man's life, through his feelings, his sexuality, his body, his self-image, his relationships, even through institutions like religion and government and medicine and law. So that would be a much more comprehensive view and one that I would argue is more evidence-based. So if you only look at this much of the evidence, can you really call it evidence-based? If you're not including the experience of those patients later in life and the long-term fallout of what you're doing, can you really call it evidence-based? Right. That is the view that our culture, ha- that, or at least the medical establishment, hasn't explored yet. I think the wider culture is changing on that, and people are having a very different conversation than you see among groups that practice the procedure and make money off of it. <clears throat> yeah, very, very well put. I'm... Um so obviously, if people haven't seen this documentary um, and you're really interested in this conversation and going deeper, I highly recommend you do it um, and really, really just kind of educate yourself on this topic. Um, the documentary is such an incredibly well, well provided display of, of everything I would say that you need to know about this. Um, I want to ask you, how has this journey into this, this work how has it affected you and how has it affected your perspective where maybe that's changed from changed you from before you did this and you know, now what, what you're looking at in your life? I think the biggest thing is that this documentary has been an incredible course in human psychology because the issue itself is very simple. You know, if I was to land on an alien planet and tell someone, maybe rethink holding down children and cutting parts of their body off, that would seem like a very direct, simple statement. And yet when you have that conversation with people, it brings up all of this other stuff. It brings up their feelings about their sexuality and their body. I think on the issue of circumcision, our language is really important here. Mm. Because what most men say is, I am circumcised. They don't say, I was circumcised. Wow. And they say, I am the same way you would say, you know, I am white or I am male or I am black or I am whatever you are, I'm, I'm gay, I'm straight. It's an identity thing. And people react when you question circumcision the same way that they might react if you were to say that something about their identity was bad. And yet it's not an identity level thing. It's something that happened to you. You weren't born circumcised. And I think if people were to shift their language and say, I was circumcised, or circumcision is something that happened to me, they'd have a very different perspective on it. So that psychology, that way that the human mind thinks, that that stuff about human consciousness is the biggest thing I've learned from working on this film and something that I am applying to every area of my life. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so important. I just thought about like all the, the cases of people with diabetes or cancer or whatever the case is, like you often hear, I am a diabetic, I mm-hmm. am a cancer patient, or I am a cancer survivor, or I am an alcoholic. Well, what does that do? We, we know for sure in the work that I do and the colleagues and doctors that I work alongside and study, 
there is an absolute causation between the identification with a condition and the the inability to overcome it because mm. you know one of the things that that happens is that you take somebody that has so identified with their circumstance or their their condition let's say where they also receive incredible care and one person does the same exact thing and they completely reverse it and heal and go about their life. But this person over here who does exactly the same thing, they are not able to overcome that circumstance or that condition. Um, it basically has a hold on them. And, and that's, that's really, really important from a psychological perspective, how much the mind has to do with our physiology and our biology and the, you know, whatever we may be dealing with. Um, I didn't think about it in terms of circumcision, but now I can see why so many people, especially men, um, or mothers would be so triggered and so upset because it, it fundamentally disrupts an identity that they, that they have, or all the, like you said, all the emotional baggage that that's really, the identity is like the, it's like the, um, it's like the, the, the valve, right? But then you pull the valve off and then it's, there's all this emotional stuff there. And uh, I think that's why so many people have such a hard time with it. Yeah, it is. I think that too comes from the fact of how early it happens that people don't have a conscious memory usually of having any other experience. And it's also the fact that you can't undo it, at least right now. Now there is something I mentioned called foreskin restoration where people will stretch the remaining skin over time. And men who have done this report a significant increase in sexual sensation because the head of the penis, if it's exposed, you know, it's meant to be an internal organ biologically in the intact male. But if it's exposed, that's rubbing against whatever clothing you have, the inside of your pants, uh, your underwear. And over time, it develops what's known as keratinization. So keratinization, you've probably had the experience of if you work with your hands a lot, you get calluses on them, your elbow will have a bit of keratin on it. And that is your body building up a layer of thick material on the outside to protect that part of the body because it's being constantly rubbed against things. And what happens if you restore, if you cover that part of the body, even if you just run an experiment where you were to cover it with something else, if you were to, for example, wear a condom for three weeks straight, that goes away and it becomes mucosal again, kind of like the inside of your lip. And men who've done that report a significant increase in sensation because one of the things I've heard is it's like when you were 18 again or when you were young because you've got however many years you've been alive of keratin built up on there. And at the same time, it doesn't get everything back. So the, the foreskin actually has complex structures in it. It has the, what's known as the frenulum and the ridge band. And the ridge band is actually the most nerve-dense point on a man's body. It is the ring around the end of the foreskin. And obviously, these complex nerve endings can't come back. You can stretch the skin to cover where they were, but they currently can't come back. And there are people who are working on changing that. So, for example, there's an organization known as Forgen that is working with regenerative medicine to try to grow that back. So they've done things with regenerative medicine where someone has a finger cut off and they grow it back. Um, there's actually been people who've re used regenerative medicine to regrow parts of a woman's vagina. And so the theory is, well, we ought to be able to do that with the male foreskin. We have this massive population that's all lost this body part, and we want to do research in, in 
regenerative medicine and we want to heal people in that way, why don't we apply it to this? Mm-hmm. And at present, uh, they're still working on it. I don't know how far off it will be, but I see it as a scientific possibility. In fact, I think it is probably possible given our existing technology. It's just that no one with the means, with the funding, with the scientific resources has tried to do it yet. And I don't think that will happen until men reach a place in their consciousness where they're willing to ask for it, where there is the public demand. Because once there is the public demand, there are going to be people who say, I would like a piece of that market. But that requires men to integrate themselves enough and to become conscious enough and aware enough that they're able to ask for it and they're willing to ask for it. And I've heard it said that you can't, you can't solve a problem at the level of consciousness that created it. And you have to be willing to become fully aware of your feelings around it, fully aware of all of the ways that it's affected you before you can shift it. Mm. And so I think once men are willing to look at this issue, solutions like that will present themselves. Mm. I think that was so brilliantly um, expressed, you know, like so much of, so much of all these issues that we face are consciousness issues, right? And the lack of consciousness in attempt to solve, you know, to solve whatever particular flavor of problem in our society we're dealing with, um, there is a fundamental attitude, consciousness, expansion that has to happen. That doesn't happen unless we're able to experience our own emotions. And we, we touched on this in terms of like um, kind of the dismissal of male-based emotions. But, you know, I think that's a big, that's also a big movement that's arising in our world is that men are exploring their emotions. Men are realizing, wow, I've been very, I've been sexually repressed. I've been sexually assaulted. I've been, I've been emotionally, maybe I've been rejected or abandoned because there's so many single parent families, myself included. I never had a father. There's so many things that are kind of bubbling up to the surface for men now where, um, you know, it's becoming unavoidable. So to have the, to even bring that into this conversation, I think is so important. And I guess, you know, just with the little bit of time we have left, I want to, I want to just kind of ask you from this documentary, from these type of conversations, what is it that you most want people to take away from this whole, this whole subject? My goal with all of the work I do is a shift in consciousness. So my hope is that this is something that people continue to think about and that it shifts the way that they think about men, about men's sexuality, about how we treat children, about a lot of other issues. Because I think if you see the degree to which this affects people, you might be willing to question some other things you've been told by your culture. So my hope is just that it raises awareness and that it's something that people think about. There's that Jill Scott Heron song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And in interviews, when he talks about it, he says, the idea of it is that the revolution is something that occurs first in your mind. It's not something that occurs out in the streets. Once it's out in the streets or it's on television or it's on media, it's already happened. There's already been a shift in consciousness. And so I think a lot of people, when they look at an issue like this, they're looking for or waiting for the moment when it all changes and the old institutions and systems that didn't serve us come down and they're hoping for some big moment, but the big moment is you going within 
and being willing to shift your consciousness in some way and question something. And once that happens, once you're willing to do that, the other things will start to happen too. So my hope for the film is that it just gives people the awareness and information and feelings. It not even gives them the feelings, but makes them aware of the feelings they already have that they need to shift their own consciousness. I could not agree with you more brilliantly explained. Um, this has been absolutely amazing. This has been such a good conversation in so many different points that I'm, I was really happy that we were able to expand upon. So for everyone that is going to now go and watch this documentary, what's the best place to go to? Can we provide that link for the documentary again? Circumcisionmovie.com. Okay. There's a link there to all the places you can get it, Amazon, iTunes, Vimeo, and, of course, it's also on Netflix. Okay. Thank you so much, Brendan. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating episode of the Holistic Health and Human Potential show. Before you head off, I want to invite you to go to my website for further podcast episodes and tons of free content on holistic health, natural nutrition, and human potential. Please go to www.ronnylandis.net to find out how to take your health and your life to the next level. And also, I want to encourage you to leave a five-star review for this podcast on our iTunes page, which will help me in my mission to get these inspiring messages to millions of people throughout the world. I thank you so much for your support, and I look forward to continuing to provide amazing conversations and content on holistic health and human potential.